Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. You are listening to the Build Your Network podcast. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. John, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Hi, Eric. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, excited to chat, especially about what you're working on right now. Uh, but we always like to take these conversations back to the very beginning. So tell me a little bit about middle school, John. Uh, what were you like back then? Uh, what was the start of your uh, your journey? Wow, middle school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess I was a sight to be seen in middle school. I mean, I was a very late bloomer. Mm. And so in middle school, I was like, you know, a third of the size of anyone else my age. And so I was a frequent target of bullies. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, um, I can't say I have fond memories of middle school. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, you know, I guess here in terms of how it shaped who I became in the future, I would have to say that one thing middle school gave me was uh, a real sense of empathy. Um, which certainly has come in handy in, uh, you know, in my adult career, both as a leader within organizations 
as well as a specialist in customer experience, since customer experience is a lot about empathy. Uh, but yeah, it certainly taught me about empathy, that uh, that experience. Right, right. What, what, what were you thinking as you started going into high school and started, you know, I mean, as early as middle school and kindergarten, people are asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, what are you hoping to accomplish? Did you have any clear vision for what you wanted to do with your life at moving into high school and getting ready for choices about college and all those sorts of things? Yeah. So uh, when when I was growing up, I was a total computer geek. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, this is when this is when we're talking about computers that had eight inch floppy disk drives. Right. Uh, and so it's a totally different era. But I loved to program. And so mm-hmm. I actually thought that that's what I was going to go into. My dream was to actually uh, build an artificially intelligent computer. And this is before, I mean, now everybody throws around the term AI, you know, like there's nothing to it. But, uh, you know, back then it was a very different environment and AI wasn't in the mainstream at all. And that actually was my dream is I like remember watching these sci-fi movies that had computers that could understand plain language and do all sorts of things. And that's really what I wanted to build. And so in high school, you know, you ask, what was I thinking in high school? In high school, I was focused on, I want to get out of high school. Like that was the number one priority just because I wanted to finally get to college. And when I got to college, I actually started as a comp sci major. I didn't end that way, but that is where I started. Yeah. Well, you pivoted into cognitive science, which is a very different path. (laughs) So what was it that kind of took you from the computer world to... I guess the human right. world. <laughs> so in my sophomore year of college, I took uh, a required course for the computer science degree, and it was called discrete mathematics. And as soon as I started that course, I realized, okay, this is not the kind of computer science I like. <laughs> right. And I realized this is not going to work for me. Um, and that what I like to do with computers was, you know, I, there was just no way I was going to be able to stomach some of the required elements of that degree. Uh, and so uh, so I pivoted to cognitive science and uh, cognitive science at the um, college I attended. It was actually an independent major that um, I constructed and had to get approved. Hmm. And it was a combination of psychology, linguistics and computer science. So it might actually sound like it was a significant departure from where I started, but it really wasn't because it allowed me to focus on the elements of computer science that I was most interested in. Um, so, for example, I did my senior thesis on how to get computers to understand uh, context in language. And so the cognitive science major actually allowed me to bring a whole bunch of things into my study that I liked, including the parts of customer experience, uh, the parts of, of uh, computer science that I enjoyed. Sure. And, and when you were kind of crafting this path going through college was was there a thought of how you would apply that once you got out or was it just something where you were kind of exploring to see where it would take you yeah i was interested in applying my degree in the business world you know i grew up with a father who went to uh you know it wasn't a 9 to 5 job it was more like a you know 6 to 6 job given his commute but I sort of woke up and um, I mean, I I, I sort of, uh, you know, was uh, cultivated an environment where I just saw my dad going to work every day and doing the business stuff and whatnot. And I have to say, from an early age, I kind of thought, okay, yeah, I'm going to do something in business. And so I did initially try to get jobs at companies 
that were really on the leading edge of um, trying to get computers to be more artificially intelligent and to do things like understand speech and whatnot. And um, I didn't get any of those jobs <laughs> or none of those jobs were offered to me. And so uh, in the end, I actually decided to go right from uh, college uh, to business school. Mm. Um, and, uh, and even in business school, when I graduated from business school, I actually looked at some companies that were working in the computer science, cognitive science space. I didn't end up there, but it was still something that was of interest to me. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, like, because technically we, I mean, we always put technical stuff and the emotional side in two separate categories. You know, we tend to say like, there's the, there's the even business, there's the business side. And then there's like customer relations. And it seems like from day one of your professional career, it was trying to merge those two things into one category. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, the uh, first exposure that I had to business was in college selling radio advertisements door to door. Uh, because I was trying to get a show on the college radio station, which mm. actually was not a university supported station. It was a commercial station derived all of its, uh, funding from selling radio ads. Mm. And when I went to the station and was like, Hey, I want to be a DJ. They were like, yeah, sure. But if you want anything other than the graveyard shift, you need to bring money into the station. And sure. so that was my entree into business was selling radio ads. And I think that's really where I began to understood the um, how the emotional resonance of the experience that you deliver to others, the interactions that you have with others, how significant an influence that can have on their willingness to consider buying whatever it is you are selling, uh, as well as their willingness to refer you to others or to continue buying from you after you have a relationship with them. There is a social psychologist, his name is Jonathan Haidt, and uh, he once said that the emotional tail wags the rational dog. Hmm. Uh, and he wasn't saying that in the context of business, but I, I quote that often because I think it has a lot of relevance in business because ultimately people's purchase behaviors and referral behaviors are going to be largely influenced not by a logical, rational evaluation of the experience they're getting from a business, um, it's really going to be influenced by how they feel, just the emotional connection and the emotional resonance of uh, of that interaction. How did you first start? Because on a radio station where nobody knows you, you're starting a show from scratch. How do you begin building that kind of emotional foundation with with your audience? Oh, with my audience as opposed to my advertisers? With both. I mean, because I have to assume the advertisers need to know that there's listeners to be able to buy ads, and then you need to be able to have a good rapport with the advertiser. So I guess in both of those spheres, how did that how did that play out? Right. So, you know, with the advertisers, I think one thing was first, I, I just, I had a, uh, I didn't think of myself as a college student. Like mm. I, you know, I got dressed up when I went out to sell these ads or to meet with one of these clients. Uh, and I was essentially pretending that I was in the working world at a commercial radio station. And I kind of was because I think that that just, you know, the physical cues, what they see when they cut, you know, if I walked in with flip flops, I think it would have a very different impression. Sure. And, uh, you know, there would be different emotions that would be evoked. There would be emotions of anxiety, you know, worry, like, are they really, are they for real? Um, but you know, when you walk in, in a, a shirt and a tie, um, immediately it kind of changes the tenor of the conversation. They take you a bit more seriously. 
But, you know, here's one thing that we found actually was really helpful um, in building this emotional connection. One thing that we did, and remember, we're college students. We like, you know, we like to tinker. And so we would actually make advertisements for uh, local businesses before we even met with them. Hmm. Um, and so we would like record a 30 second spot and then we would go in and we would play it for them. And it's not to say that we would actually use that spot in the end, because obviously we'd want to get their input in, in shaping an ad that meets their needs, but to come in and actually have something like that, that they could hear with their own ears and really, it kind of creates a visceral reaction. Like they can suddenly imagine what it would be like for them, for their business to be advertised on the radio. So that was one interesting technique that we used uh, you know, when we had time on our hands just to uh, just to actually do some ads for, for businesses that we hadn't even approached yet. In terms of your question about listeners, you know, with listeners, I actually think that it's a little bit easier with listeners because music is inherently a very emotional experience. Um, you know, uh, uh, it's uh, w- when you hear music, it's, um, you know, this is actually, I've heard it described. I remember I was, uh, in a class in college and this stuck with me for a long time that if there's ever anything that is potential proof that we have a soul, it is music and our response to it. Hmm. Because when you think about how we respond to music, there's no evolutionary benefit to how we respond to music. You know, music creates all kinds of feelings in us, excitement or sadness or whatnot. And it's almost like there's something else going on there inside of us that that elicits that. And so, you know, if you are provided you are telling your listeners what kind of music they're going to hear on your show so that there are no surprises. And in my case, it was uh, an oldies show, oldies defined as 50s, 60s, and 70s music. And so as long as you're like giving them what is billed, uh, I think actually it's easy to establish an emotional connection because if you're playing music that they're expecting to hear and they love, they sort of automatically have an emotional connection to it. Yeah. You mentioned on the business side going in, like wearing a tie, presenting yourself in a way that was, you know, would garner some more attention and respect within the space you're going into. Uh, how does that play with authenticity? Because obviously, you want to be true to who you are, your personality, your style. Um, how do you present yourself in a way that where you're meeting people where they're at without sacrificing kind of the authenticity of who you are and, and what you represent? Yeah, I think that, you know, for me, that what for me personally, that really was authentic, because mm-hmm. I, uh, as I said, you know, I had designs on going into the business world early on. So it, in my view, it wasn't a real, a real big leap to sort of put on the button down shirt and the tie. You weren't choking in a tie, sort of, stumbling in. Yeah. Or, you know, I was sort of, it was like my dress rehearsal for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where I ultimately hope to be now that that was me. I totally hear what you're saying that, you know, there are some people who might just sort of have a more casual nature to them. And, you know, actually the idea, the thought of putting on a tie is just anathema to them. You know, they don't even, it's like, can't even imagine it. And that's fine. I think you have to sort of find the, the middle ground. Um, you know, you can, you can sort of, uh, clean yourself up nice to go on a, at a client, in a client meeting, even if you don't enjoy wearing a tie. It's just the difference between like making sure you're not wearing the shorts and the flip flops if you're a college student and, you know, you're trying to be taken seriously as a business person that is getting somebody to fork over real money, like yeah. in some cases, thousands of dollars 
uh, to buy these radio ads. So I think that you have to be will. I think you have to be true to your authentic, authentic self, but I think you have to be willing also to kind of meet the person that you're trying to influence and target halfway and make sure that nothing that you're doing is going to make them run for the hills mm. before they have a chance to get to know you. Once they get to know you, then I think there's the opportunity where the needle can shift a bit and they might be more comfortable with you where if you come in one day and you're actually wearing the shorts and the flip-flops, once you have an established relationship with them, they won't bat an eye, you know, and they won't think anything less of you. But that first impression, I think it needs to line up, you know, with the uh, emotions that you're trying to elicit and sort of the logical evaluations that you're trying to uh, foster in their mind. And yeah, the flip-flops and the shorts weren't going to work for that in my view. Right, right. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over one hundred and forty million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Well, I mean, you've come a long way from a radio station on a college campus. Uh, you know, you've worked with some major companies and helped them really do this at a larger scale. So what what was it that led you to kind of transition to consulting with companies, helping them to really create their their messaging, their their experience for the people they're in contact with. You know, the thing that uh, I had actually, once I was in the corporate world, um, I had always thought about putting out my own shingle and starting my own consultancy, just because I liked the idea of being my own boss, of running the show, of doing the kind of work that I like. And so the thing that actually made me realize, gee, maybe I have some kind of unique point of view here that would really be helpful in that realm is without actually planning it. When I was in the corporate world, uh, it was like I was playing some kind of trivial pursuit game of functional roles mm. because I managed to uh, 
get rotated through a whole bunch of different functional areas in my corporate life. Uh, at various times, I was leading um, sales, marketing, service, operations, distribution, uh, even IT at one point I led. And so when you are trying to create a great customer experience for customers, one of the things that that requires fundamentally is all the silos of an organization kind of coalescing around that one imperative and making sure that they are working in alignment to deliver that great experience. Because that's where many companies fall down is that they don't realize that each of those functional silos is kind of working across purposes from the other. They're marching to their own set of metrics and objectives mm. without realizing that what it is that they're doing might be good for their performance evaluation, but it undermines the holistic customer experience that the enterprise is trying to create. And so once I started getting those little trivial pursuit pieces from all of those different functional areas, I started to realize, gee, you know, that's kind of unique to actually have walked in the shoes of the head of sales, the head of marketing, the head of distribution, the head of IT, the head of service. And it dawned on me that that, that actually could, I could parlay that into a value proposition uh, with my own consultancy, uh, particularly given that so many companies fall down in, in that arena in terms of getting those functional silos to really um, orient around that, that customer experience imperative and to work uh, collaboratively to achieve whatever aspiration you have for the experience you want to deliver. Now, how do you bring that out in a team? Because obviously every group marketing or sales is going to have their own KPIs that they're following and they're saying, I want to, we want to accomplish this. But when you talk big picture goals, company mission values, like the overall experience of your organization, how do you get buy-in from all those different elements and all those different people who are, you know, again, they have different goals, but they're all aligned in the same, same mission. Yeah. I think that, um, Certainly, a lot comes down to how you measure people's performance. As you said, the KPIs that each functional area has, it is so easy to create metrics that bastardize people's behavior, you know, that compel them to bastardize their behavior in a way that is really not conducive to optimizing the enterprise performance. So I think that's the first thing is that you've got to make sure that in at, at the functional level that there are metrics that are not... Um, undermining or contradicting other things you're trying to do. Second, I think that you've got to have some metrics that are uh, more enterprise focused and actually ideally are uh, externally oriented. So by that, I mean voice of the customer type metrics where you're not relying on your internal gauges to tell you whether the organization is delivering a great experience. You're actually relying on the horse's mouth, on the customer to tell you. Because if the customer says, hey, you know, you stink, then you stink. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what the internal indicators say. That's the end of the story. And that is one way to rally all of the functional areas around that common objective is to hold people accountable for that kind of measure. And even if it's holding them accountable just by creating sort of a bonus system where, hey, you know, a part of your bonus is going to be based on us achieving some level of uh, customer satisfaction or net promoter or whatnot that, uh, you know, is indicating that we're delivering the kind of experience we want to our customers. But the other thing I would mention to answer your question about how you facilitate that kind of environment actually goes to making heroes out of people who do it well. Mm. Uh, you know, when you are at the top of the pyramid of an organization, 
by virtue of the perch that you inhabit, you have a tremendous opportunity to show people what right looks like. And one of the things that you could show people what right looks like is, well, what does it mean to be an enterprise player? What does it mean to be a good corporate citizen? And so if you see a person in one functional area that's doing something that might not actually give their area a whole lot of benefit, but it really helps somebody else maybe downstream in a partner organization, those are the kinds of things that as a leader, you want to make sure you are celebrating and making heroes out of the people that do that. And by hero, I mean like in the all-employee town hall meeting, you're bringing that person up on stage and just celebrating what they've done. Because when people see that that's what people are getting recognized for and rewarded for, they start to model their behavior after that. Mm -hmm. And that can be a very powerful catalyst, I think, for creating the kind of uh, environment that that you're describing where people sort of check their functional silo hat at the door um, and they really have great uh, cognizance around the enterprise objectives. Well, internally, it's so important because, I mean, the issue in so many companies is that people are only it's only those KPIs. It's only these things where it's like, okay. And then you get people who get really good at their job and they get punished for it because they finish their work early or they, they knock out their set goals. And you're right. Rewarding those people that go above me on do something that maybe isn't in their sphere that helps smooth out the overall process. Celebrating that's going to make everybody better. Yeah. It's going to, and it might shift people's roles too. Like that's a, that's another angle to that. Yeah. It might move them into different, different areas of the company. Yeah. And that's a, that's a very good point because it, it might not even be that I can help my functional partner. But if I just raise my hand and say, Hey folks, there's something I'm being held accountable for that is actually creating a problem for my colleague over here in another area. You know, it, that, that kind of behavior to raise that red flag and say, Hey, we need to rethink you know, either my objectives, my performance metrics, because if I follow that, I'm going to do a disservice to the rest of the organization. Even if you're just the person on the team that raises their hand and says that to the boss, I think that's something that needs to be recognized and, you know, celebrated as, okay, yeah, that's the right way to approach that problem. Absolutely. You you mentioned the voice of the customer. Obviously, that's the final say in everything, you know, whether a company lives or dies is by the opinion of the customer. And, uh, you just had a book come out this week uh, called From Impressed to Obsessed. Um, can you give maybe a couple key takeaways for people who are considering picking up the book or curious about uh, what the, the vision of the book is or maybe two or three takeaways that would kind of share what your, uh, what your thought process is that you're trying to convey uh, through the book? Yeah, sure. So I think the best way to describe the book is actually to, to quote the first line um, because the first line and the central idea is that if you are aspiring to satisfy your customers, then you are aspiring to mediocrity. Mm. Uh, and the reason I say that is to create real sustainable competitive advantage, you can't just rely on satisfying the people that you work with. You need to impress them. You need to leave an indelible positive impression in their minds that's going to make them excited to work with you again and to tell others about you. And the thing is, forging those impressions is really an exercise in shaping people's perceptions and people's memories. Mm. Um, and that's really where the cognitive science, getting back to, to my background, that's where the cognitive science of customer experience comes into play, uh, which is the main focus of the book. Because it turns out that the companies that do this well are all really using the same set of science-based experience design techniques to create those memorable impressions. Uh, and the book distills those techniques into a dozen 
actionable principles that can be applied to any type of business and importantly, any kind of customer. So whether you're working with consumers or colleagues, um, institutions or intermediaries, um, employees or even employment candidates, uh, you know, the book basically is describing those principles and how you can apply them to all of those different constituencies, leaving those great impressions that are going to make people to want to work with you again and, and rave to you about, uh, others, rave to, to others about you. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it's definitely an interesting concept because it is, I think so many people are focused on customer satisfaction, but that's not necessarily what brings loyalty. You know, there's so many other layers to that. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's like, would you like your spouse to be satisfied or would you like your spouse to be loyal? Mm. I mean, that kind of like brings it home, like, what is <laughs> right. the difference? Right. But yeah, I mean, satisfaction, study after study has shown that satisfied customers defect all the time. So if you're trying to derive competitive advantage from the uh, product or service experience that you deliver to people, well, you're not going to get there by satisfying them. You need to impress them. Uh, and I think that what many companies don't realize is how much, uh, to what degree this is an exercise in memory shaping. Because, you know, arguably how people remember their experience with a business is more important than the experience itself. Right. Uh, because if I, if I say to you, Eric, you know, hey, I remember you worked with company X a few months ago and I'm in the market for, you know, those products. So what did you think of company X? Well, the next thing that comes out of your mouth, Eric, is not going to be based on the experience you had with Company X. It's going to be based on what you remember about the experience. Mm. And the way our brains are wired, those two things can actually be quite different. Um, and that's really what the book's about is how do you sculpt those memories so people walk away recalling all the great things in the experience while the not so good stuff just kind of evaporates from their recollection um, because mm. that's how you're going to drive repurchase and referral behavior. Right, right. Yeah, for anybody listening, definitely grab a copy of the book. It's out right now, so you can you can order it and dive deep into all of these concepts. But I, I got to ask you, because this is the Build Your Network podcast, and you're so people-focused, I'm curious to know what your answer is. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? So, you know, I am an idealist. Hmm. So I would like to believe that what you know is more important than who you know. Uh, so I am a strong believer in the meritocracy, okay? Mm. But as much as I am an idealist, I am also pragmatic. And so I have to concede that I think who you know helps an awful lot, as unfortunate and unfair as that can often be. Awesome. Awesome. I figured that would be your answer uh, that, I, that I had to ask. Uh, I'm going to move us here into our random round. We've got some quick questions for you, some quick answers. First off, what profession other than your own do you think it would be fun to attempt? I think it would be cool to try to run a hotel. Interesting. Um, because, you know, when you talk about customer experience, um, a lot of people think about hospitality. Um, and in a hotel, you know, you can't get away with a poor guest experience. Uh, and I think that would be interesting to work in a business where it's just the customer experience is so close in front of your face every day. And also the notion of working with people who are like, in, they're, they're happy, they're on vacation, they're, you know, looking forward to whatever destination they're going to. I think being a manager of a hotel resort would be pretty neat. Awesome. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? I think I would pick Jerry Seinfeld 
because I think he's really funny. And I think that humor, uh, talking about emotional resonance and customer experience, humor is a great way to create an emotional connection uh, with people. It can also be very disarming and and help uh, in difficult situations. And I'd love to talk to him and understand his creative process and how he just sort of collects ideas and forms them into jokes. Yeah, I, w- I was talking with Travis well, I talk about a lot because we talk about stand up all the time. And I say, like, Jerry Seinfeld's become somewhat underrated, I think, because, you know, he doesn't put out as much as a lot of other comedians do. But the guy just knows how to craft a joke. He knows, how, and he's a hard worker. I mean, he writes a joke, I think, every day. Um, you know, the way he thinks about material is so interesting. I'd love to. He's somebody that I would love to sit down and talk with. Um, so you could join so, me on that park bench. Yeah, we'll try it. If it's a three-seat bench, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll do it together. Uh, how do you like to learn best? Is it books, blogs, podcasts, videos? What's your, what's your favorite way to learn? You know, I'd have to say that it's actually uh, none of those. I, I, I would say it's newspapers and magazines Interesting. Are, are probably my best way to learn new things and stay up to date. Gotcha, gotcha. Give me a glimpse of your morning routine. Let's see. Get up by six, check my overnight emails, uh, make the kids breakfast, get them ready to go off to school, uh, exercise, shower, and then to the office and get started. Gotcha. What's your go-to pump-up song? What are you blasting through the speakers while you're driving to the office? (laughs) Uh, I, I don't blast it in the speakers on the way to the office, but you know, if I had to pick one, I'd have to go with, uh, gonna fly now from the Rocky soundtrack. Gotcha. Classic choice. Classic choice. Uh, what is something you're not very good at? Uh, dancing. I I'm right there with you too. Uh, what is one place where people can find you the most? Obviously they can go and pick up a copy of the book by visiting link in the show notes. Uh, but what are some, uh, social channels or places where people can keep up with you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. And, um, if you actually go to the, uh, the book's official website, which is impressed to obsessed.com, that's impressed the number two obsessed.com. Uh, from there, you can not only learn about the book, but uh, learn about me and my company and uh, all the social media uh, platforms where you can connect with me. Yeah, and everybody listen, we talk about on every episode where we mention a book because we recommend a lot of great books on the show. The minute you hear the name of the book, add it to your cart. Don't forget to do it because if you say, I'm going to grab it later, it never happens. So just add it to your cart, pick up a copy right now. Uh, you're not going to regret it. And thank you so much, John, for bringing a lot of really good applicable wisdom to our audience. And I'm really excited to check out the book. Thank you, Eric. I really enjoyed talking with you. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, 
you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.